Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated, won't you? Good morning, everybody. I was looking at a, a couple lists this week as I was preparing uh, for, for today, today's scripture study and noticed um, a list of some of the most powerful, I don't know, entities, groups, people, uh, themes in the world. You won't be surprised that on the U.S. News and World Report list uh, with put up by the Warden School in, in Pennsylvania and the BAV Group and some others, that the U.S. is the most powerful nation in the world with China being number two. And who's number three? Russia. Yes. By the way, um, you know what makes a powerful nation according to this list? It's, um, it's uh, military might and money. So not much has changed in thousands of years, right? Most powerful companies according to Ford. Forbes magazine. J.P. Morgan and Chase, number one. Uh, Saudi Arabia Aramco, number two. And a company in China that I would butcher the name of, so I'm not going to pronounce it. Um, most powerful websites. Any guesses? Google, YouTube, Facebook. Hold on, i got to check my feed real quick. on a. On a <laughs> Most powerful usher team, Bob Borders and TJ. <laughs> Most powerful deacon, Gordon. You know, our collect for today, the, the collect of the day we pray in, at, at morning Eucharist, and then throughout this week, from morning and evening prayer or other Eucharist, it becomes a part of us, the themes. Did you notice that we ask for something Interesting. It seems interesting to me, at least, for God's power to show through the church to all the peoples. What does that look like? What does it look like if the gathered church reflects God's power to everyone, all those that he has made? I mean, when these are our lists for the most powerful company, the most powerful nation, the most powerful websites, what, what does this mean? Does God need a website that outdoes Google? Does the church need, we need to resurrect Angel's army? We used to have an army of uh, volunteers who would help us keep the ground called Angel's army. Do we need to resurrect the church's army? Like, what do we need to do? Is that what power means? What do we mean when we pray, gather us in unity, God, to show your power to all peoples? Well, I think that our answer, at least in part, comes from the Old Testament lesson. If you have your scripture uh, um, leaflet or in your Bible or on your phone or iPad or whatever, find it now, Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 1. Here's what power looks like, at least according, here's what God's power looks like, at least according to Exodus. And these themes follow us, by the way, all the way through Scripture. Heads up, this kind of power, God's power, the, the power of the one who made power, it's very different. It's very different. Three things we're going to see about this power. It's strongly challenged. 
It's surprising and subversively creative, always. And finally, it culminates in something that surpasses anything else on earth. It's challenge, it's creativity, and it's culmination. Let's go. Here we go. Verse 8 in Genesis chapter 1. Now a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. This verse says so much in so few words. The story here that we're entering in in chapter 1 of Exodus, it's like season 2, episode 1 of the Israel and God series, all right? Genesis was season 1, and now we're in season 2, and it's the first episode, and the episode kicks off the new season in a very unique way. This is what, just, the, just throwing out the name Joseph, the author is telling us, you've got to know and follow the story in the series. But in season two, in episode one, right here in Exodus, Israel has gone from having a person like Joseph at the right hand of Pharaoh and they're in his favor to being oppressed. Something like 400 years later now, in this season of the show, Israel and God, they are not in favor with this big power, this nation that would have made the list that we just described. They're just a nothing people, and their God is a nothing God as far as Egypt is concerned. No one knows or cares who they are. Some little neighborhood out in Egypt, little tribes people, they worship kind of a weird God that we've never heard of, Yahweh. Well, and at this point in the story, we don't even know this God's name. So notice the challenge to God's power. This God and his people would have not been on any list, any list in the world. Verse 9, he said to his people, this king of the empire in Egypt, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. So here's something else you need to know about the challenge to God's power. The reason it's so crushing as this season two opens that uh, Israel is enslaved by Egypt is because God had made all of these promises in season many as the stars in the sky. So God's promise is on the line in this show that we're watching, Israel and God, season two. God's promise is on the line, and it seems like his promise is, uh, is coming true. Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Verse 7 that you, you don't have uh, printed for you from in the bulletin. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. We find out a little bit later that the more uh, Pharaoh made the people of Israel labor, the more they labored. And babies were born. It's, it's this interesting dynamic, this tension of God's promise and the challenge to his promise and power. It seems like they're growing and yet they're being oppressed. Pharaoh is literally trying to murder them. So what do you do when you think God should be fulfilling a promise that he's not fulfilling or it seems like he's not fulfill, fulfilling? How does your faith handle the pressure when it looks like God's power is being challenged? Some of us feel that at like a global sense. You know, um, why is there so much violence in the world? Why the poverty? 
Why the abuse of innocent people? And so on. Some of us feel the challenge of God's power in our individual lives. God, why the cancer diagnosis? Why this illness? Why the betrayal? Why can't I beat this addiction? I'm encouraged by verse 3 of a hymn that I learned growing up. This is my father's will. It's a different version than the one printed in our hymnal, but it, it, it goes like this. After singing about God's creation and it, the birds and the grass and God's created all things, then verse 3 just punches you right in the gut, and it goes like this. This is my father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. What do you do with the challenge to God's power? Do you see it? ...us to have an eye toward the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. When the author presents Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh says in verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them. Pharaoh thinks he's being wise, right? Wiser than God, we assume. Wise like the serpent in Genesis 1. He says, let us deal shrewdly. It sounds the hearers of this story would have thought, you know, that phrase sounds familiar, like when the people of ba um, ba Babylon gathered to build the tower because they thought they were wiser than God. Let us reason because we're going to build the tower up to the heavens. So the author presents God's adversary and Israel's adversary just like the serpent is presented and all the other forms of evil and uh, adversarial forces in Genesis. Pharaoh's just one more. By the way, Pharaoh's not even named, which is very interesting when you think of how much power this nation had. So like Babel, like the serpent, even like the flood gets referenced in this story. A little bit later, uh, we're, we're going to read about Pharaoh throwing, uh, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There's another body of water that threatens to kill all of God's people in Genesis, right? You remember that story, the flood, and they're rescued by an ark. The word for ark is also used here in this story to, to describe the little basket that Moses gets put in. So the author wants you to be thinking about Genesis 1. And the great challenge to God's power is still going on. Will his promise come true? Secondly, how does God overcome this? The creativity. This is some masterful storytelling. It's not just a beautiful story. It has a beautiful truth. Because in the creativity of God... God uses agents of power that the world would dispose of. Look at uh, verse 15 and following. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah. But again, it's, it's kind of telling that the author wants you to know the names of these midwives, but doesn't really care about the name of the ruler, right? Talk about a different kind of power. And so Pharaoh tells him, I, I want you to, kill, uh, I want you to kill, the, kill, kill the baby boys. Just the boys, by the way. In Pharaoh's mind, you know, the, the, the girls, I, I guess they're useful for other reasons. Um, they'll grow up to be concubines. They'll grow up to be servants. They'll, uh, but they're not useful. But the boys, now they're a threat, right? This is ancient Near Eastern thought, not something that we would think of today. And yet... This theme runs all through the scriptures. The agents of power that the world would choose to lead their organizations, lead their nations, 
lead their cause, whatever. Those are not the people God would choose. I, I, I love this truth. There are five people in this story. Before we get to Moses, the birth of Moses, whose name hasn't even come up yet, right? The deliverer of Israel in Egypt. Five people get mentioned before that story ever happens. And do you know who the five people are? They're all women. The first heroes of Exodus and the people of Israel are women. And two of them are midwives. The third is Moses' mom. The fourth is Moses' sister. And just to drive the point home into Pharaoh's gut, the fifth hero, female, in our story is Pharaoh's own daughter who's used to defeat him. Magnificent. I love it. The midwives, by the way, there's some fun stuff going on here in the original language where we don't know if the author is saying uh, the Hebrew midwives or midwives to the Hebrews. And the reason that's important, I know it's kind of nerdy. The reason it's important is because it, it, it's possible that they were Egyptians. They weren't even people of Israel. They were just doing the right thing, saving innocent lives, right? There's some document that was found in Cairo, Egypt, in an archaeological dig with a list of Gentiles who had been friendly to the Jewish people. And on this list of familiar names like Rahab, remember Rahab's story, on this list are these two midwives. That is to say, the author of that list in, uh, at some point in history assumed that they were Egyptian ladies who were just doing the right thing. Who does God use? Who are the agents of God's power? He's creative in his choice. So creative. And I can't help but think of, uh, for example, this week, walking into church office and uh, passing by Edna Ramsey. Uh, T-shirt and shorts. What you doing today, Edna? Uh, you know, she's sweating like, like all of us, I know. But uh, cleaning the kitchen. That's what I'm doing, cleaning the kitchen. Talk to um, the altar guild. Folks that you don't see behind the scene. They're, they're behind the scenes, right? Making it all happen. But not just at a church level. The men and women right now in this room who spend a good portion of their day with little ones running around uh, uh, making messes and having lots of fun but making more messes and so on. When that's your life, uh, the agents of God's creativity Listen, you stay-at-home moms and dads, you're probably, I hate to break it to you, not ever going to make the world's most powerful stay-at-home mom or dad list. It's probably not going to happen. I don't know if Edna Ramsey is ever going to win an award for cleaning the cathedral's kitchen. Or any, or Ellie, I don't know if you're going to win an award for your altar guilt. Um, yeah, or Miss Landis for sitting out in the hot sun, uh, taking people's names for we gathered here. I don't think there's going to be a most powerful list for that group. And yet, you are the people, we are the people that God uses in creative ways to defeat his enemies. I just have to mention, too, again, about Genesis 1, um, the actions, not just the agents of God's creative power, but the action here is explicitly birthing creating humans. That's what's defeating Pharaoh. All right, finally, finally in the, uh, the, the, the grand finale of God's power and how different and unique it is, what would it look like if the church showed God's power to the world, its culmination? Verse 10 
of chapter 2, finally we get to Moses. When the child grew up, Pharaoh's daughter brought him to, uh, um, sorry, his sister brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Boom. We We don't have his name. We don't have the name of the deliverer, the leader of Israel, until here, after these other heroes. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. You got to wonder, did Pharaoh know when he made these rules and created all of this challenge to God's power? Did he know that he was putting Israel in a situation to build up a leader who was going to land in his own household and then lead the people out? Uh, did did Moses' mom know what this boy was going to grow up to do? Uh, did Mary know? I won't sing this song, I promise. <laughs> what was it like to be around Jesus and his family? Did anyone have any idea through the challenges and the creativity of, of God's, seeing God's power in a manger, in an inn, in a cross? Are you kidding me? So friends, don't be discouraged with how small your job or vocation seems in this world. And while the evil seems to be so strong around you, because look at the Exodus, look what God did against the challenge of all of his creative strength. It culminates in Moses who will deliver the people out of Egypt. And ultimately, this, we skipped a word in the college. We talked about the church being gathered together. This is God's people. What does it look like when God's people show up? These, these women being the people of God, just where they're at. We talked about all the peoples, Pharaoh and Egypt. People don't know anything about God. We talked about uh, God's power, but we didn't talk about the people of God gathered in unity, in unity to show God's power. So here's where I close. There's so much disunity. And I don't just mean amongst us as relationships. I mean within ourselves. Disunity in our fragmented and broken world, right? So we need a deliverer to bring that unity so that we can show God's power to the world. And right now, as we gather around this altar... We unify ourselves to Jesus. We we literally put Jesus inside of us. We unify with our deliverer, and we are unified together. And I pray today, and I pray this goes with us this week, that maybe just for a moment, the world, all the peoples, would get a glimpse of the creative, magnificent power of God as God's people are gathered in unity around his altar. Amen.